Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Hello and welcome back to Patrick Boyle on Finance. So this week in the news, uh, legendary investor Jim Simons has stepped down as the chairman of Renaissance Technologies, which is of course the most successful quant hedge fund in history. Now Simons hasn't been in charge of the day-to-day running there for probably over a decade, but he has stayed on as the chairman of the fund up until this January. Jim's retirement marks the end of an era in finance. Simons' career and the fund that he launched proved that the finance textbooks which claim that markets are perfectly efficient were wrong. Obviously, the trading strategies at Renaissance are secret, but let's look at Simons' career and see what lessons we can learn. So Simons didn't have a fancy upbringing. He was a middle-class kid from Massachusetts. His father was the manager of a shoe factory in Brookline, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. He excelled at school, graduating high school in three years, then skipping the first year of mathematics while at MIT, and eventually earning his PhD from Berkeley at the young age of 23. So Simons was clearly a very smart guy, but he was also focused and hardworking, and he found something he was interested in, mathematics, and really pursued it. Simons then went on to teach mathematics for a few years at Harvard University before famously working at the NSA as a codebreaker. While he was at the NSA, Simons noticed that his brilliant colleagues weren't hired in for their experience, but instead just for their sheer brain power. And he realized that you can teach a person how to do a job, but you can't necessarily teach someone to be smart. And this realization was one of the keys to his later success. When you look at the reasons that Renaissance was so successful, it's not actually down to just one great genius. The success was driven by Simons hiring a series of the best people that he could find. It reminds me a little bit of the career of David Bowie, who was a great musician on his own, but he always picked the most capable musicians to work with in various styles of music, and then he stayed relevant by moving with the times. And we see this exact same characteristic when we look at Jim Simons. While using computers to break codes for the NSA, Simons began thinking that you could possibly use them and use these mathematical approaches to analyze and trade markets. He did some early investing and trading from that point forward, but he really didn't hit his stride for quite a while. After his time at the NSA, Simons was hired to lead the math department at SUNY Stony Brook. I think he was around 30 years old at the time. His contributions to geometry and topology while he was there led to him winning the Oswald Veblen Prize in Geometry in 1976. This is a prize that's only awarded every three years. It's a very big deal in the world of mathematics. While he was at Stony Brook, his talent for hiring became clear. He quickly built a world-class mathematics department at Stony Brook, including hiring James Axe away from Cornell University and Ivy League University. Axe had won the prestigious Cole Prize in number theory. At this point in Simons' career, he was 40 years old. He'd been a star cryptographer, scaled the heights of mathematics and academia, 
and he then quit, much to the surprise and disgust of his colleagues, to start his fourth career opening an investment firm which he named Money Metrics, a combination of money and econometrics. We can see at this point in the story that he wasn't someone to just rest on his laurels. He looked for new challenges. His mathematician friends thought that this was just crazy, but he did it anyway. He just followed his vision. He had an idea. He wanted to go with it. You'd probably guess that he had great success right away, right? Because we wouldn't be telling his story if things didn't work out. But that's not exactly how things went. He did all of the right things. He hired the smartest people, initially partnering with an old code-breaking friend of his, Leonard Baum, who had co-developed the Baum-Welsh algorithm, one of the most notable advances in machine learning. They worked on developing a probabilistic approach to trading using hidden Markov models. A year after that, he recruited James Axe, the star professor that he had lured to Stony Brook. He hired him away to join them. This was 1978. They had very little luck early on building quantitative trading models, and they drifted towards trading on news and on their instincts about markets. James Axe stuck the most to the quant approach and developed some crude trend-following strategies, but they weren't necessarily what you would have expected from a team of brilliant mathematicians. They weren't exactly innovative either, even at the time. In 1982, Simons renamed the firm Renaissance Technologies, away from Money Metrics, partially to reflect his interest in making technology venture capital investments. From 1978 through to 1984, they didn't really make an awful lot of progress, and they didn't, they definitely didn't earn the kind of returns that you associate today with Jim Simons. After a 40% loss in bonds in 1984, an automatic clause in their agreement was triggered where Lenny Baum's positions were liquidated, ending the partnership. A year later, in 1985, James Axe moved to California, forming a new company called Axcom Limited, and Simons would receive a quarter of the profits for providing trading help and dealing with the firm's clients. He would continue on with his VC deals, that was kind of his main thing at this point, while the California team would focus on quant trading. Now, some good things did happen over this slow period. They did hire some good people. Sandor Strauss, for example, was a Stony Brook professor who was brought on as a computer specialist in 1982. It turned out that he had a passion for data and he began collecting market data wherever he could get it. He would buy pricing data from exchanges, from the Federal Reserve. He would extract it from old newspapers and he would organize and clean the data. He even started collecting his own tick data from a market feedback then, something that really no one else was doing at the time. Henry Laufer was another Stony Brook mathematician who came on board back then as well and was developing computer simulations to test strategies. Simons once again had the good sense to hire these bright and driven people and to let them do the things they did best. He didn't hire average people and micromanage them. He hired the best people that he could find and then let them do their thing within reason. By 1986, Axcom was trading 21 different features 
futures contracts using a mix of quantitative strategies and judgment calls. They had mixed results and they weren't really doing very much new research to improve their trading strategies. The team didn't yet fully believe in their big idea, the idea of quant trading, and they were often overriding the system or trading just based on instinct. In 1987, they brought on a guy named Rennie Carmona, who was able to work with the data Strauss had collected. And he started building a model that looked for similar market environments in the past, and then built forecasts for the future based upon that. This was an early machine learning approach, and the team were initially very uneasy with this uh, to begin with. There were lots of squabbles within the group back then, and in truth, squabbling between team members has been an issue up until the present day uh, at Rentech. In truth, it's just never going to be easy to manage the type of smart, hard-charging, and frankly, prickly people that you find in organizations like this. In 1988, Elwyn Burlkamp joined the team, another brilliant mind who had worked with Claude Shannon at MIT and with John Kelly at Bell Labs, the team that had developed the Kelly criterion influencing Ed Thorpe, the father of quantitative trading. I made a video about that topic a few months ago. Interestingly, Ed Thorpe happened to be winding up his fund right around the time that these guys were getting going. Um, they weren't the first, obviously, to try a quantitative approach. They just went on to become the very best at it. So up until now, returns had not been amazing and investors in the fund had grown frustrated with Jim's venture capital investments. So he sold all of those off and launched a new fund. And this fund was named Medallion in honor of the mathematical medals that both Simons and Axe had won. They had around $20 million in assets under management at the time, and they had the right team in place. It was 1988, they'd been working on this for around 10 years at this point. The first few months for Medallion Fund did not go well. They had early losses of around 30%, and Simons had to halt trading. He and Axe were at each other's throats, they hired lawyers and hurled lawsuits at each other. And so early on, it just looked like this wasn't going to work. Everything would have to wind up. Burlkamp, in order to keep things going, bought most of Axe's shares in the partnership. Uh, I think Axe hung on to 10%. Burlkamp now owned 40% and Simons owned 25% and the rest were split up amongst the team. They shut down Axe's trend following system, now focusing on Burlkamp and Carmona's black box approach. It's worth noting that Simons was nervous about this approach at the time as the signals didn't seem to make much sense to him. They weren't sort of linear signals that could be clearly understood as to why the system was doing what it was doing. There were other difficulties in the early days too, like when they discovered that floor traders were front running their trades in the pits, which was cutting into their ability to generate profits. 1989 was unfortunately a down year for Medallion investors. In fact, it was the only down year that they had, but I'm getting ahead of myself. In 1990, they returned 55%, and that's after fees of 5 and 20. The return before fees was, I think, around 78%. At this point, they were managing $45 million. They traded commodities and currencies and had an average holding period of around a day and a half. And they continued to trade this product mix with roughly this holding period for another decade. 
Simons, after the big up year, set out to raise more investor capital in the early 1990s, and he didn't really have much luck at all. Investors felt that his fees were much too high, that he didn't have a long enough track record, and they were outraged that Simons would not explain how the models worked, and that's often a difficulty for quant traders. Throughout the 1990s, they continued to hire well, and they consistently improved their approach. The system at this point was a living thing. It was constantly being improved. They analyzed things like slippage. They improved analysis and execution. The team had lots of discussions trying to understand if their strategy was winning, who out there was losing. It didn't appear to be floor traders or hedge funds. Most of these guys seemed to be making money at the time. And so they came to the conclusion that they were picking up the pennies that other investors were dropping through being too cocky and through making behavioral mistakes. They decided it was most likely dentists who were losing the money that they were making. Most investors approached the market filled with their own cognitive biases. They let their emotions get the better of them. The systematic approach avoided emotion. The computer never had too much to drink the night before trading, and it never traded badly because it had an argument with its girlfriend. They found that they did best in very turbulent markets, as in times of stress, human behavior became even more predictable. As the fund grew, they stopped taking on new investors. They increased the fees for existing investors, and they put a lot of work into modeling slippage. When you're trading in very large size, your trades start to move the market, and they aim to be invisible in markets. They broke all of their trades up into smaller trades, and they aimed to trade just the right amount that would erase the inefficiencies that they found in markets, but have no additional impact on the markets. Their competitors would analyze the data and never even see the trades they had done. The idea was that they could step in and out of markets with such care that a competitor would not see that an inefficiency had existed and been arped away. Thus, their competitors, when doing analysis, wouldn't even know that an opportunity had existed, and thus they'd never compete with them for fills the next time it came up. Now, Simons had seeded a guy named Robert Fry, a former Morgan Stanley pairs trader, and had set him up with a fund called Kepler Financial Management. Fry's approach was to deconstruct the movement of stocks, identifying the factors responsible for their moves. It was kind of a more sophisticated approach uh, to traditional pairs trading, which was done back then at Morgan Stanley. In fact, I think the Morgan Stanley process, uh, what they call process-driven trading team, uh, might have even invented the idea of pairs trading. So Fry's idea was, we'll take an example like Exxon. Uh, he, he would have worked out that Exxon was possibly driven by oil prices, by interest rates, and by growth in GDP. And then he would look and see if those factors moved but Exxon hasn't moved as much as you'd expect it to have, he would then be able to trade based upon this. And his approach worked, but it never seemed to work on size. A medallion up until around 2000 was a futures trading fund, but it had just reached a point where they could no longer bring in additional capital. They'd reached capacity. And Simons wanted to grow the business and felt that he could put a lot of capital to work in equities, but he just couldn't find a good trading strategy. 
strategy. He hired in the brilliant team of Robert Mercer, Peter Brown and David Magerman, and they had been building innovative voice recognition software at IBM using probabilistic models. In fact, models developed by Simons's old partner, Lenny Baum, uh, the Baum-Welsh algorithm, I think I mentioned it earlier. They also had been involved in the Deep Blue team at, at IBM. These guys were different to the existing team at Renaissance in that they knew how to build this kind of big business software system that would be used at a firm like IBM. They were able to take all of Fry's individual studies and signals and build them into a much more efficient piece of software that could trade really well. The software was able to find signals, take execution factors like liquidity or shorting restrictions into account, apply risk management, and correctly size the trades. And this was really a new era for Medallion. This was when Medallion took a, a further leap forward. By 2003, stock trading was responsible for two-thirds of Medallion's profits, up from zero the year before. The big lesson that we can learn here is we can see how willing they were to change and the importance of teamwork within the organization. We can equally see that Simons worked away at getting this to work. Like initially, he couldn't get more equities to work for years. And then finally, he just worked away at it, got the right people in. Eventually, he got it to work. So shortly after that, Renaissance began trading international stocks too. And this allowed them to put more capital to work, but it also added greater diversification to the portfolio, meaning it reduced the volatility, giving them a sharp ratio of six in 2003, which is just an amazing risk return ratio, uh, in particular when you consider that they were managing $5 billion at the time. A big lesson that we can take away from this is just that adding international stocks for diversification purposes is a good idea for all investors. Now, Renaissance had many other tricks up their sleeves too. In the early 2000s, they negotiated with Barclays Bank and with Deutsche Bank to trade basket options instead of actually buying and selling the stocks uh, needed in their portfolio. What they did was they bought basket options, which are options on a basket of stocks, from the banks that represented their portfolio. The banks allowed them to constantly change the constituents in the basket, so they were essentially able to actively trade within the structure of this options contract. Now, this had a number of interesting effects. For one, it gave them more leverage, gave them way more leverage than was available to them before. In fact, I think up to 20 times leverage on their stock portfolio at times. Now, I should note that they were not usually that levered. In addition, it pushed a lot of the portfolio's risk to the banks as the most that they could lose was the premium that they had paid for these basket options. Most importantly, though, these options had long enough expirations that they converted the short-term capital gains of all the trading into long-term capital gains as the options lasted longer than a year. I'm actually a little bit surprised that the banks even agreed to do this deal uh, so shortly after losing a ton of money with long-term capital management in 1998, but they did. This structure added tax efficiency, saving them over $6.8 billion in taxes. Now, all investors obviously do need to pay attention to the tax efficiency of their investments, and you do need to look at the investment returns after fees and after taxes in order to compare them. 
the track record of Medallion Fund is just phenomenal. It's, it's unbelievable. They started out with high fees. The fees only got higher over time. After 2002, the fees were 5 and 44. Now, traditional high hedge fund fees are 2 and 20. They were 5 and 44. But the after fee returns were still industry beating. The after-fee returns for Medallion Fund since it launched in 1988 were 39.1% per year, with only one down year, and two years where the returns were below 10%, and one of those was the down year. There were many difficulties, of course, along the way that the great returns might appear to cover up. At one point, trading strategies and code were stolen by ex-employees. In addition, there were severe losses during the dot-com crash and the quantquake of 2007. Renaissance was likely a very difficult place to work with many disagreements between staff members at the firm. The enduring lesson for me is that hard work pays off. Some of the most successful employees at the firm had Murphy beds in their offices where they could take naps while working through the night on improving strategies. And these people did that for year after year. You know, it wasn't a short term thing. One of the big differences, it's worth noting, between Renaissance and an awful lot of other quant firms, and in fact, even between Renaissance and a lot of other multi-strategy firms, is that at Renaissance, all employees had access to all of the trading code. While they were secretive to the outside world, there were no secret trading strategies internally. Huge gains came from this collaborative environment, the way they were able to work together and improve each other's work. But it also meant that you couldn't have a hire and fire culture like you sometimes see at other firms, or you'd lose your competitive edge. They had to hire very carefully and to keep their team happy so that these guys wouldn't leave. If you want to learn more of this story, I've only really scratched the surface of it in this video. You should read The Man Who Solved the Market uh, by Greg Zuckerman. In fact, uh, this is why I can't work in advertising. The, the dust covers here. You should read The Man Who Solved the Market uh, by Gregory Zuckerman. Um, it's a really excellent book on this topic. I think it's a, a bestseller right now. Um, it's worth noting that, you know, it's not all smooth sailing. Like, it's not just a hero story of a guy comes up with a great idea and grows really rich. Um, when, you, when you read the story, you see that Simon's had many difficulties in his life. In fact, there's one... Um, there's one line in there where he says to a friend after a personal tragedy, he says, for my life is all either aces or deuces, you know, things either go really well or really horribly for me. Anyhow, uh, I strongly recommend the book. I'll put a link to it in the description below. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe and I'll see you guys again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.